Roan Mountain Radio, episode 79. Welcome to Roan Mountain Radio. I'm Ken Turner. This is a podcast about Roan Mountain, the jewel of the Southern Appalachian Mountains, always located on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. Coming up, this is going to be a great podcast. You're going to hear a term that you probably have not heard before, but you're going to be using from now on. And the neat thing is, you'll remember where you heard it. Dr. Dwayne Estes is going to be a presenter at the Winter Naturalist Rally coming up February 17th at Roan Mountain State Park. For the for all I know, this is the first time I've ever heard this term, so I'm going to give him credit for coming up with it. His presentation at the Winter Naturalist Rally is going to be on the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative charting a new course for conservation in the 21st century. Dr. Dwayne Estes is a professor of biology at Austin Peay State University, and we are really going to have a great time with his presentation. I just can't, can't tell you how excited I am to get this new term. I think you're going you're gonna to be using it. I'll just leave it at that. And the term, I'm, I can't wait. I was going to make it a surprise at the end, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you now. Old growth grasslands. I know, it blows me away too. I never thought of that, but if you've been hiking up on the highlands of Rhone and the grassy balls, that will bring a new meaning to every step you take up there. So, without any further interruption from me, we're going to go ahead and talk to Dwayne Estes. Dr. Dwayne Estes has joined us and we're going to get a preview of his presentation for the Winter Naturalist Rally. So welcome, Dwayne. I'm glad to have you with us. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. I really want to give Richard Broadwell kudos for putting together such an awesome lineup of a themed uh, Winter Naturalist Rally. It looks like there's a theme going through the presentations here, and that being the imperiled eco I don't know what you want to call it, just the bio uh, habitats maybe that would be the better word, specifically imperiled habitats. And part of your presentation is the Southern Grasslands Initiative charting new course of conservation in the 21st century. Tell me a little bit about that. I've got some other questions that will come up, but give us a little preview head start of what to look forward to. Uh, for me, I've been a, a botanist and a researcher for you know a few decades, a couple decades now, and I think like a lot of Tennesseans growing up in Tennessee, I grew up in about an hour south of Nashville in the hill country of Tennessee, which you know I think all of us can enjoy except those who live in the western part of the state, right? <laughs> uh, the hills, but you know I grew up going in the woods every day and and seeing big trees and forests and thinking about what sort of fantasizing about what the early landscape was like. And I've always had a fascination with that. I think it's evidenced by the fact I, I named my my son Boone after Daniel Boone. No kidding. Yeah, absolutely. So I always had this fascination with early exploration and early Tennessee history. And um, I started thinking back to when sort of I first started developing these concepts of, of what that was like. And it really, for me, it goes back to about 1990 when I took a uh, class in middle school called Tennessee History. And I remember hearing from my teacher this fanciful story about how the, the forests were so dense that a squirrel could 
travel from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River without ever touching the ground. Right. And, you know, going back home and getting off the school bus every day and going straight to the woods and hiking around and seeing these big remnant trees in the woods, it was easy to piece together that puzzle. Well, as years went by, I went to college and went to graduate school at the University of Tennessee and developed a fascination for studying uh, grassland plants and eventually into grassland uh, communities and pines, prairies, and savannas and whatnot. And it was then that I began to realize that we've totally missed the mark in Tennessee for appreciating how open the Tennessee landscape used to be. And uh, we didn't have a continuously forested 95 counties. In fact, the estimates that we put together suggested there was something like 7 million acres of open lands at the time that the Europeans first settled uh, Tennessee. And, I, and that's a story that needs to be told because we feel like with the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative and many of my colleagues around the South feel that the most pressing issue facing Eastern North American biodiversity right now is the loss of those naturally open landscapes. Okay, so that squirrel would have had a tough time going from the Atlantic to the Mississippi then. He he didn't come through Tennessee. Well, he he would have had a hard time leaving the Atlantic coast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, okay. you know, uh, even, even places like, we don't think about it, but, you know, places like Richmond, Virginia, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Winston-Salem, the Raleigh-Durham area, I mean, there are you know, many accounts of that area being wide open grassland prior to 1750. And uh, there's some, there's some reports that suggest that um, because of that, that was the earliest area that settled in the Southeast, essentially, um, you know, with the exception maybe of Florida, that area began to um, see the loss of its grasslands at even before our nation was founded. Acknowledge the loss of that habitat? Oh, yeah, they, they directly write um, personal observations that the loss of those grasslands occurred within a single human lifetime. Uh, there were people in their later years of their life reflected back on, you know, the way they observed things prior to 1750 and, say, the 17, you know, 30s and 40s that those uh, expansive grasslands, and they, they called them prairies, they called them barrens or savannas in North Carolina, that those were lost and had already converted to what they call thrifty or lofty forests by the time 1750 rolled around. Cause of human disturbance of the grasslands? The primary thing that, that disrupted the original grasslands was when white settlers moved in, there was a tendency to, well, in certain areas. We've got to re- remember, of course, that Native Americans have been inhabiting the landscape of the East for at least 13,000 years, probably longer. And as part of that, they were burning on an almost annual or at least every other year basis in many regions across the South. Uh, a lot of ecologists, uh, we all acknowledge the importance of Native American burning, and it, there's many different testaments to that. There's, there's, no, there's no debate about that because it's so well documented. But the, one of the issues that comes into play among ecologists is was the landscape already burning at a high frequency by the time those first Native Americans got here 13,000 years ago or 15,000 years ago, and they just kind of either ramped up the fire a little bit or took it over, so to speak, so that they could manage it? So rather than having fires burning at various times throughout the year, 
sort of uncontrolled, one thought is maybe they came in and began to deliberately set fires at certain times of year so that they could they could plan and know and control when that fire burned the landscape. And so by the time the early whites got here, they really completely altered that. So many of these grasslands, which need fire uh, on an annual to every, say, three-year basis, when those fires stopped burning with the same frequency, they immediately began to grow up into thickets and eventually into forests. That, that just is a, a story that you don't often hear or have never heard, I guess. Your passion for the grasslands caused you to start the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. That's right. How widespread of a program is that? Well, the program uh, aims to cover between a 21 and 23 state area. And and so basically it goes from roughly northeastern Pennsylvania to about Joplin, Missouri, down to Corpus Christi, Texas, and south to Miami. So it's a big area. How, how long has the initiative been in business? Myself and many other colleagues decided that we needed a symposium to begin to address the southern grasslands. There was a book published by uh, one of our staff members who we just hired named Dr. Reed Noss, who is uh, recently retired from the University of Central Florida. Reed uh, published a book in 2014 called Forgotten Grasslands of the South. And in it, he actually references the Gray Museum of Natural History and many of the finds in and around Johnson City uh, in terms of the, the, the animal fossils and stuff and, and the kind of how they fit into this broader story over a seven million year history. Reed really pointed out on a grand scale how ecologists across the country have been missing the mark. You know, we've always thought about uh, places like Kansas and the Dakotas and Illinois, the Prairie State, as the areas where grassland occurs in North America. And so what we've come to realize, though, is there are more species of plants and animals that require grasslands that occur in the southeast. It's important. There's more species in the southeast that require grasslands than the entire Great Plains of the U.S. and Canada combined. And, and that's, wow. yeah, that's been totally missed because everybody thinks of the south as being forested. That really then gets back into this, this poorly known story, as you alluded to earlier, that you know in the Carolinas, nobody knows except for very few individuals are aware of these historical grasslands. And, and the primary reason that is is that by the time the first educated people who could have the time to sit there and document the landscape, by the time they came along, the landscape had already changed. And so they were gone before the camera was invented. They were gone before they could be painted or drawn or illustrated. And so they literally just escaped our escaped the attention of our society, and so they're forgotten. In, in looking into some of your information, I did find the uh, Southeastern Grasslands Initiative and a video mm-hmm. that you put together that showed some old maps of Tennessee, and they listed savannas and barrens. Is that map missing from North Carolina? No, that actually, that map that you see in the video is um, is cropped. And so if you were to look at it, that's a, a map that the French drew in 1720. And it actually shows the entire eastern North American continent, essentially from the Rockies to the Atlantic. And so it shows Savannah over what is now uh, the Piedmont region of North Carolina and Virginia. Okay, so it was available for the mapping purposes then. 
It was, but you know, a lot of those early cartographers and and early settlers and naturalists, uh, or early, you know, they were a lot of the early mappers were so concerned with just political boundaries and and that kind of stuff that they they did not take into consideration or take the time to make notes about the historical landscape. Uh, one of the things I did catch in that video that just stopped me cold was a term I'd never heard before, and I want you to. Explain a little bit about that and how that may be applicable to our uh, grassy balls on Roan Mountain. And that term is old growth grasslands. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. That, just, that stunned me. Yeah. Well, you know, ecologists have long held on to this notion of what they call climax communities. Essentially that you take any piece of ground in the eastern U.S. or anywhere in the world, but particularly, let's say, in Tennessee, if you take a piece of ground and you just let it go through the processes of succession, eventually they held on to this notion that at some point it's going to reach this stable endpoint. And in most all cases of Tennessee, everything basically progressed, according to their theory, into a forest of some type. And that the longer you let it go, it could basically go from a bare rock outcrop eventually into forest if you gave it enough time. Well, that, that whole climax theory has is, is largely been abandoned. And we now realize that there were a lot of other factors that kept things from ever reaching some kind of stable endpoint. And fire is one of those things. Grazing is another. So you had millions of years of fire on the landscape, you had millions of years of grazing on the landscape, and those were factors that just have to be considered into the overall equation. So if you if you look at somewhere like the Run Mountain grass balls, you know, they're old growth grasslands in the sense that under the historical natural conditions, you know, they eighteen thousand years ago were open tundra. And probably for the past two million years before that had gone through these episodes of being open tundra and kind of like they are now, uh, of being kind of small. But those, that tundra habitat, that, that very short grass grassland in the last ice age would have extended probably halfway down the mountainside. What you see today is basically as the climate has warmed over the past 18,000 years, those grasslands have retreated to the very tops of the mountains. Now, what kept them open in these, in these warm periods that occurred in between these glaciation events, these ice ages, and these ice ages started about two and a half million years ago, so they've been coming in about every 150,000 years. So between these ice ages, during these warm periods, the grasslands would have retreated back to the tops of the mountains, and so to keep them from reverting completely into high elevation spruce and fir forests, you would have had this long succession of big mammals that were up there grazing. And so these included things like stag moose, typical moose, caribou, elk, a variety of species of bison. The grass balls atop Rhone had all kinds of big mammals in them. Um, and so about 18,000 years ago, these mammals largely dropped out, possibly due to overhunting by Native Americans. From 18,000 years ago, after you lost woolly mammoths and elk and all those things, you would have gone through this basically a succession of having just elk and bison, uh, primarily elk graze those high elevation grasslands and deer up until the first Europeans got here, in which case they brought in their, their livestock. And so that's kind of maintained these grasslands over the course of the last, you know, 18,000 years. And as we go forth, you know, as, as long as the climate doesn't warm too dramatically, which it, it might, uh, then we'll continue to have those grasslands likely into the future. 
but if climate change happens and the mountaintops do indeed warm, then those southern grass balds could be lost in time. That would be a shame for a lot of reasons, but I just old growth grasslands, that, that just really struck a chord with me. Well, you know, in, in other places across the south, our grasslands look a lot different than those that run mountains. So um, I think it's also important to realize that there are still places, say, between Chattanooga and, and Johnson City that have old growth grasslands in the Ridge and Valley. And those look obviously very, very different. But that entire valley used to be open, like a big grassy highway, basically. You know, a lot of a lot of us think about fields as being young, but yeah, we can have old growth grasslands down there too. Part of the grasslands initiative I was looking at was the ability to identify even small, really small sections, a couple of acres sections of this old growth grassland. And in some cases, preserve those by relocating sod that's right well that's and that the reason we do the, the small is because that's all that's left you can basically think of grasslands of our region the south is more or less there's a couple different uh there's many many different types dozens of types but they occur in kind of two size classes you had those like the ridge and valley uh basically from birmingham to probably central pennsylvania near state college pennsylvania that entire valley would have been millions and millions of acres of various kinds of grasslands and woodlands. What we have left of that today is extremely tiny fragments, basically a 10-foot wide roadside strip or a quarter of an acre here, a quarter of an acre there. Usually the rockiest examples are left over because that's what couldn't be farmed and, and has been able to persist all through this time. Uh, there are some other kinds of grasslands that are just naturally small. And, uh, you know, maybe they occur on very steep side slopes of hills and mountains, and therefore they kind of more or less fared pretty well over the course of the last 200 years. Gosh, well, that just that's amazing that to be able to identify a million acre, multi-million acre grasslands and identify the last quarter acre of it. I, I find that just a needle in a haystack kind of discoveries. Well, you know, it, it takes uh, it takes a certain eye to be able to spot those, and largely we spot them based on uh, what species are present in terms of plants, and, and, and mostly it's based on plant composition. And whatever, you know, if you have grassland plants that are prairie plants, then uh, oftentimes the animals that need those grasslands are going to be there. Um, the, the downside to that is when you go from tens of thousands of acres of grasslands in northeast Tennessee's Ridge and Valley down to a total of less than 10 acres scattered over five counties, then you may still have some of those grassland plants there, but the grassland animals can't, they can't live in those tiny little spots anymore and still maintain their integrity. So uh, butterflies, uh, bees, uh, a variety of small mammals like meadow jumping mice and certain reptiles that need grasslands, they drop out because they may have to travel 20 miles from one grassland patch just to get to the next one. I will take more interest on uh, the the medians I drive by, thinking that that little patch could be the last old growth grassland. Absolutely. So as part of the initiative to identify, and I know there's a two-edged sword of publicizing the rarity of things, but somehow to let people know, yes, this this roadside is the last scrap of a old growth grassland. Yeah, I mean, the majority of things that are still growing in those roadside remnants, you know, I think it's important to let the, the, the public know about them. It's, it's imperative that we work with uh, local county and state highway departments because 
especially since the 1990s, the reality now is that these grasses have been pushed absolutely to the brink of extinction. And we don't often think about habitat types as becoming extinct, but that's, that's a very real thing. And so now that they've been eliminated as, you know, our, our pastures where everybody grazes cattle, you know, those used to be our grasslands in many areas across Tennessee. Well, beginning in the 40s and 50s, they were all converted to fescue pastures. Fescue grass is native to Europe and Asia, and it can't, it, it behaves totally different. So the animals and plants that normally occurred in grasslands, they, they can't compete with that. So they've been totally changed. Those that occurred in deeper fertile soils were converted to crop fields. Those were that in more infertile soils because of fire suppression grew up into forest. And so now we've got these little bitty tiny fragments along railroads and roadside margins or at the edges of fields. And these now are being sprayed with herbicide or mowed to death, basically, as people have these now, these fancy mowers. Everybody wants a nice manicured farm and landscape. And so there is just no place for our remnant grasslands. And we need to do everything we can to maintain those or they're going to disappear completely. I appreciate you bringing bringing this message to the winter rally. This is going to be a, a great presentation. It's just things I, I was totally unaware of and need to learn more about that. I appreciate you spreading the word for that. Well, I think one thing that may resonate with a lot of folks in northeast Tennessee is quail. It's like it is in other parts of the southeast. Uh, people, uh, Tennesseans have long enjoyed hunting quail and having yeah, I know people have had quail for Christmas dinner. Quail are a grassland, savanna, open grassy woodland dependent species. And as I mentioned, those various factors have led to the decline uh, are directly responsible for the loss of bobwhite quail. And so there's a brand new report that's just come out that suggests that by the year 2029, uh, so 11 years from now, the current U.S. quail population is going to decline by half. And then by the year 2036, so just a few years later, that population is going to cut in half again. And so um, quail have become exceedingly rare over the past 25 years in many places. By the year 2050, uh, where are they going to be? So, and then take quail and then multiply it times a thousand for the other species of plants and animals, and you can see the reality of the situation. That's that's a shame. I mean, even now to hear a quail is a rare you stop and listen and say wow i haven't heard that in forever forever yeah and you know i re- i read a report online a couple of days ago by the eo wilson foundation uh, eo wilson's probably one of the greatest scientific minds of all time he's a, uh, up at harvard and is now probably 90 years old but there was a there was something on that foundation website that i read that really struck me and it said if you think back to the 80s um and before uh, if you were driving with your family on a long car ride or something like that, or, or just driving at night, think about how many insects that you you would see hitting your window or the moths are attracted to your headlight beams you're driving down some back road. And if you think about it, it struck me when I read this a couple of days ago, you don't see that anymore. You, I mean, think about how few insects that you have now on your back porch or, or hitting your headlights in your windshield that you got to clean off. And uh, that we are on the on the uh, beginning edge of what's called the great insect die-off and um, in large part that's due to chemical application but also a major element to that in our region is the loss of grassland habitat great insect die-off yeah it's it's major i mean there's you know more species of insect than anything in the world 
there's 350,000 species of beetles. And I mean, that's 100,000 more types of beetles than there are plant species on the planet. And so, you know, we're looking at the leading edge of what a lot of ecologists refer to as the sixth mass extinction in the world, world's history. And uh, it's a very real thing. Well, that's, uh, that's kind of like a chain reaction beginning then, isn't it? Big time. Absolutely. It's a hard situation. I mean, you know, that's why if you think about where Tennesseans enjoy going for vacation, you know, um, the Blue Ridge Mountains are beautiful. And, and, and the Blue Ridge is one of these areas that, you know, 90% of Blue Ridge Mountains has always been forested, at least for a very long period of time. Right. It's just those mountaintops and a lot of those, uh, the valleys among the Blue Ridge, like up at Shady Valley and Hampton Cove, you know, they would have had historically uh, valley bottom grasslands and bogs and that kind of thing. But other areas of the, of the South, um, you think about where would you go in, to go on vacation? We want to go to mountains. We want to go to places that are shady and cool sort of to, re, you know, retreats. And that's really guided our whole conservation vision for the South. You know, we protected these rugged, mountainous, beautiful landscapes, but nobody today would imagine or even envision going to western Greene County and purchasing 20,000 acres to create a new grassland preserve. Right. Uh, it's just counterintuitive to what most people think about. But that's that's what we that's what we need. And is that uh, an emphasis for the Grasslands Initiative also? It it varies across the South. You know, you go to places like Mississippi, everything's in private ownership, everything's in cotton fields. If you want to restore large acreages of, of grasslands, a they don't really exist. So you'd have to go to these roadside remnants, uh, collect seeds, grow the seeds out, and go back in and try to restore or recreate it, which is, you know, almost a, a comical situation because it, it's, it's very difficult to ever recreate. You can't recreate. Uh, but in other areas, like on the Cumberland Plateau of Tennessee, uh, over in Crossville, you have tens of thousands of acres of land that right now are already in public ownership as state parks and natural areas that have immediate potential within, say, the next five to 10 years, you could recreate or, or restore massive grasslands on the big scale. The problem you're going to face there is public public blowback because as you and I've sat here and discussed, the average Tennessean thinks of Tennessee as a forest. And, and now imagine going into logging the heck out of a, a site, a 3,000 acre site to recreate a savanna. People are going to get up in arms and you go start cutting down a bunch of trees. Even though the species that need it the most don't live in the forest. Today, they live in power line corridors, and they live on these roadsides, and uh, that's exactly what's needed. So the education is a huge thing to get across there. Education and advocacy um, uh, is is big. You know, making sure there's a voice uh, reaching our legislators uh, is something that we're committed to beginning to ramp up those efforts. But one thing that, that I would like to see happen that's, I think, especially relevant to Johnson City, Bristol area is develop, developing what we call a grassland conservation team. And so this would be uh, a team of school kids, college kids, retirees, just volunteers from the community who would come together and, and there probably would be a coordinator that they would work with who would take ownership in their own, basically they would be empowered and trained to go across the northeastern counties, identify these remnants, you know, take ownership in their preservation and conservation. 
that's something that we urgently need. And part of our goal in the next few years is to get those started in a lot of different communities across the South. Grassland conservation team. Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, from your timeline with the quail, the uh, short window to get started here. It is very much so. Yeah. And the bugs on the windshield, what's missing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and it happens, it happened on our watch and, how many people realize that? the winter rally is part of our education then you got it you got it well i appreciate it Dwayne. thank you for spending so much time with me and really looking forward to the presentation at the rally i appreciate it thank you ken i really enjoyed that conversation there were so many things i had never thought of that were brought to my mind that just incredible and like he said a window of opportunity here that in the next 25 years so much is going to be lost here again the uh, matter of education finding out what we need to know and doing something about it so i hope you come out to the winter naturalist rally february 17th links for the brochure and information at friends of mountain.org also links on the podcast page for roanmountainradio.com episode 79 just an, an awesome opportunity for you to increase your education and like you said before it's too late i think if you if you realize how it used to be driving through the country and the bugs splattering your windshield when was the last time you noticed a lot of bugs on your windshield i mean that that again made me stop and really think so i hope you'll come out and join us by the great big fireplace at the rome mountain state park conference center we'll look forward to seeing you there That's it for this edition of Roan Mountain Radio. I'm Ken Turner. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the mountain.